TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest-growing TV brand. Stories of that game and what happened in the clubhouse is just fantastic. There's no game that can bleep you like this one! <laughs> it's Roycey on Baseball. Let's go here. Danny Hill and Ricey here, a little baseball conversation. Uh, the TK doubleheader today, Tom Kelly and Tim Kirkshen. Uh Before that, Manny, I was in uh, Montreal last week yeah. uh, for a few days. And, of course, Montreal is attempting to uh, regain Major League Baseball. Stephen Bronfman is the head of the effort. He is the son of Charles Bronfman from Seagram's, who owned the team originally okay. when they were well-funded, and then Seagram's kind of made some t- terrible business decisions and blew up, and Bronfman sold it, and the Expos ended up moving. But every time I think of the Expos, I think of 1994. Yeah. Never has a town, for want of a better word, on a podcast that got screwed by baseball <laughs> as bad as the Expos did. 1994, the Expos, after not a great start, were 74-40, and 40, had the best record in Major League Baseball when Man. the strike came on August 11th, and they never resumed. And the owners were underfinanced, and basically during when they came back from the uh, – from the not the strike, it came back from yeah, came back from the strike. They had dumped everybody during the off season, and they had no money, and they broke up the club. But I look at every time uh, we talk about, uh, I I think about the '94 Expos. I got to go back and look at the roster, starting rotation. Kenny Hill, he was 16 and five uh, with a 3.32. He'd already pitched 154 innings, and there was, what, a third of the season left? Mm -hmm. The number two starter for that team was a 22-year-old kid named Pedro Martinez. He was pretty good. Who was 11-5, and 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 he was learning his trade. And then they had a crafty lefty who people will remember, Jeff Fasaro. Was sort of a uh, had been a reliever, and they got him up in Montreal. And they made him a starter, and he was you 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 sent Kenny Hill out there and Pedro out there blazing, mm-hmm. and then the third game of the series, you get Fasaro throwing up this uh, you know stuff of his <laughs> big looping curveballs and stuff. He was good. They they had two more lefties in the rotation: Butch Henry. A veteran guy, another lefty, Kirk Reiter, Reader, remember him? Big, yeah. tall lefty. He was good. Mm-hmm. He was still there good. That was their rotation. Uh, and when they needed another starter, they had a couple of you know uh, kids. But their bullpen, John Wetland and Mel Rojas. Yeah. And Mel Rojas was the best of those two. Mm-hmm. Wetland was basically pitched in front of Rojas. Uh, they ended up, uh, actually, Rutland ended up 25 uh, saves. Rojas ended up 16. But three other guys in that bullpen, Gil Heredia, Jeff Shaw, and Tim Scott, who had a great year that year, they were all out of this world in that bullpen. That was their 10-man pitching staff that they relied on back in the day when starters went seven and a third. So that's pretty good pitching staff. That pitching staff will win for you. Yeah. And then, <laughs> now the catcher was uh, Darren Fletcher, who was, a, I believe, a left-handed hitter who had a fairly good career. He was mm-hmm. okay. He uh, actually had 10 home runs and 57 RBIs in two-thirds of the season. The right-handed hitting catcher who played quite a bit, our old pal Lenny Webster. Yeah. was uh, It was sort of a platoon, and Lenny, very good defensively. First base, Cliff Floyd. 21-year-old Cliff 21 Floyd. 21-year-old Cliff Floyd, <laughs> who kid. was a son of a gun. Mike Lansing, who was a, in his second year and was a hell of a second baseman. Mm-hmm. Really good. The shortstop, Will Cordero. I remember he Will Cordero. He was 22. Wow. He was 22. He had a good career. He was sort of Johnny Peralta. He wasn't a great shortstop, but he, you know, a big guy who hit some home runs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he had 15 home runs and 63 RBIs in two-thirds of a season as a shortstop. At 294. Shortstop. Sean Barry, good third baseman. He was, uh, you know, he's, he was a, a competent third baseman. This outfield pack. And they had Rondell White in the outfield as the fourth outfielder. <laughs> the other outfielders were Moises and Lou, 
Marquise Grissom, and Larry Walker. Wow. That was their team, ladies and gentlemen. No DH back then. And uh, uh, that is the uh, never has a team gotten robbed like that team. Uh, they were going to... They were going to go to the World Series for the first time and, and probably win it. It was uh, it was fantastic claim. And yeah. the strike came on August 11th, and Montreal basically said, bleep you, baseball, and the people stopped coming to games. And uh, they've uh, all – they ended – did you say 03 they went to Washington? I think it was 03. Yeah. 02 I mean, they, they had no they... money. I mean, hell, they, by the end they were playing 15 games a year in Puerto Rico and uh, yeah. Major League Baseball took them over. Uh, now, uh, Bud hated Jeff Loria so much, mm-hmm. and they were trying to get him out of the way up there to think if they could figure something out in Montreal. He ended up arranging for John Henry to buy the Red Sox when they got up for sales to get out of Miami. Yeah. And the idea was they're going to send Loria down to Miami and have him go broke. <laughs> and then, you know, they ended up. Uh, Dombrowski made some great trades for him and won the World Series for him, and they mm-hmm. ended up they couldn't get rid of him and. And, uh, of course, he, he ruined the franchise down there, and then Derek Jeter came along and ruined it even more. But, uh, yeah, Montreal, uh, fantastic baseball history. I wanted – there was a book. I was I needed a book for the trip home, and I went to the bookstore, mm-hmm. and there was a great book there on Jackie Robinson's year in Montreal. Unfortunately, it was in French, and they didn't have it. And they didn't have it in English. And oh, uh, no. I said, "Come on, go back there. You got to have it in English." And they said, uh, "No, we we don't." Uh, so I, I I I'm gonna try to order that book off Amazon. But I'm gonna I, I Stephen Bronfman, as I said, is trying to get is leading the charge, and I'm gonna talk to him a little later and try to do something on Montreal trying to get baseball back. But. Uh, you know, it is incredible when you go back and read about uh, Rachel Robinson talking about Jackie Robinson and the year they spent in Montreal, the first year they were in the Brooklyn organization, because mm-hmm. they'd been down in Florida for spring training and were treated. I mean, it was brutal. Yeah. And then they would go up to Montreal, and the level of racism was non-existent, really. Yeah. I mean, they, they, you know, what day? Hey, there's a black guy playing baseball. Good. You know, and uh, – <laughs> And and they, it, it was funny. I was reading a little bit, a synopsis of it, and uh, one of the worst towns that when he was playing in the International League that year for the Expos was Syracuse, was terrible, and there was a few other towns. Now, when he went to Jersey City, which had a, a good sized black population and were you know used to integrated baseball or black Negro League baseball anyway, they'd draw like fifty thousand people for a mm. for wow. a for a International League game to have Jackie Robinson. But anyway. Folks, check out the 94 Expos if you want to see a baseball team. And they were young. Yeah. If you had money, if you want, let's say you went and won the World Series and, you know, filled Olympic Stadium, they could have kept that team together for a while. They didn't have to trade him. I I remember, I mean, Moises Alou was. Oh, he, he was, was great. A, he was a big, big oh, deal yeah. back then. I remember, oh. he, I remember that the All Star game that year, 94 in Pittsburgh, he had the, he had the game winning double. In uh, I think it was I think it was in the tenth inning of I think that All Star game went went yeah. ten, went extra innings yes. and he oh, he yeah. hit the he, double in the left center to score Tony Gwynn from I think Tony Gwynn scored he, from second or first I mean that's one to of score the, great, the winning run that's one and, of the, and Rondell was twenty two and just yeah. coming into his own and uh, trying to get on the field Felipe course, was managing and yep yeah, uh, the catcher was uh, Cliff Floyd was twenty one Lansing was twenty six Cordero was twenty two. Sean Barry was 28. Moises, Grimm, Grissom, and Walker were all 27. Rondell was 22. And, uh, you know, Kenny Hill was 28. Pedro was 22. Reuter was 23. Uh, Pat, they could have. Wetland was 27. Mel Rojas was 27. Shaw was 27. Scott was 27. And Aredia was 28. They were in position to... Be a, be a be be a sort of a mini. I don't want to say dynasty because you never know what would have happened as far as winning titles. But they would have been oh three four in the mix three three them. or four years yeah. of just being one of the top teams in baseball. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's always been a sad. Day. I remember being in uh, in uh, I covered the winter meetings that year in Boston. I believe they were and uh, writing a thing about 
you know, about the Expos and what was going to happen and what a tragedy it was talking to some Montreal baseball people. And that was that was the end of Montreal as a baseball town. But I don't know. I found an area where uh, I, I don't know if I'm rooting for Montreal to get American League team or not because there's a big bourbon and cigar bar. And then it's about two doors away from the Chez Paris, which is one of the most famous gentlemen's club in the world. I don't know if my guy Lavelle Neil the Third could take any trips to Montreal. I don't know if we'd ever see him again. I don't know if we'd see him again. A cigar bar next to Chez Paris. That might be the end of poor old UNLV. That might, yeah, so uh, we can't, uh, maybe we can't worry about that. TK, followed by TK. Tom Kelly is with us, talking uh, baseball, talking twins. We were t- uh, we had a brief chat uh, the other day about uh, the s- pitching situation after you watched the uh, Seattle train wreck there for three days. What is about three four years ago, Tom? We were worried about how pitching was going to dominate the game, and uh, things have uh, changed dramatically. Uh, you think the hitters have adjusted? There's just they're trying to, with 13 pitchers, you just can't have more than about nine good ones. And what, what's going on? Well, I think if you want to really get into it, Patrick, and, and have a, a three-hour discussion, mm-hmm. you could start talking about expansion. Mm-hmm. And the expansion uh, has certainly diluted the product. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, pitchers, as well as some players, some players, were allowed to play in the big leagues and participate in the big leagues, and God bless them, uh, but maybe not have the same talent level as some of the more established-type players, uh, some people with experience, and and uh, things began to get uh, diluted. You saw players uh, that played in the minor leagues for six, seven, eight years and finally get a chance through injury or, or whatever the circumstance and get a chance and be somewhat productive and contribute and be able to function for two, three years in the major leagues and get some time in. So good for them. But uh, I think uh, with the uh, advent of, of the number of injuries, uh, the pitchers especially, has been, well, there's players too, but mostly pitchers, uh, you see them get hurt on a, a somewhat, regular basis uh, throughout the game and uh, so once somebody gets hurt you got to go down to the minor leagues and pull somebody and things begin to deteriorate so if you get a a couple injuries along the way especially in the pitching staff you've uh, uh, probably brought up a couple pitchers from the minors that probably aren't as good and then it sort of becomes a snowball where uh, you ask other people to do maybe a little bit more than they're capable of doing, and subsequently you see 10, 11, 12 runs go on the board and the need to have 13 pitchers just to try to get through. And uh, if you have a couple bad days uh, out of the week, seven games, you go two, three days where your starter doesn't pitch into the game, uh, things are going to really unravel for you and, and you're going to have uh, a headache just sitting there as the manager or coach and a uh, pitching coach and try to figure out how you're going to get through the eight and a half, nine innings. So uh, it becomes a little bit more of a nightmare. Uh, we've seen some big numbers go on the board this week, this past week, you know, with uh, a lot of runs. Uh, the Twins uh, scored their share. Uh, there, there was a lot of teams or 10, he saw some 10-9 games and things like that. And and uh, I always want to try to blame the umpire mm-hmm. for not calling enough strikes. But, uh, I, you know, there's no question that, that pitching is uh, really diluted. And, and uh, you'll see, uh, if, if in the Twins' case, if they can keep their guys on the field and pitching uh, in their spot, uh, they can be pretty successful now I, I am a little guarded with that because I, I, I still think uh, our pitchers uh, as well, you know there's a whole bunch of them but uh, especially uh, the twins because we follow them more closely uh, you, you I think they do need to pitch into the game a little bit further you know uh, Barrios the other day not being able to get the win when you know he's got 14 15 runs on the board 
and he, he can't get through the fifth inning. Uh, that, that's a little disturbing. You'd like to try to give him a break uh, with some of that maybe because he had to sit on the sideline for 35, 40 minutes, you know, three different times. And that's not really good to, you know, for a pitcher to sit there that long. They don't mind getting the runs, but on the other hand, they don't want to sit there, especially if it happens uh, three times where you get prolonged innings. So there's a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, the big numbers go on the board, but uh, the bottom line is that uh, some of the pitching staffs around Major League Baseball are probably a little somewhat diluted and due to injury. TK, how do you feel about the the, the pitcher win, the wins for the pitcher? We had this discussion ah. on the air yesterday, and – I was reminded of uh, back in 1997 when uh, Mr. Radke won 20 games for you, and I remember that uh, game against the Brewers at the Dome where uh, he went 10 innings for you to get his 20th win. H- how do you how do you feel about the pitcher win in today's baseball versus versus back then at that time? Well, uh, I think they're important. I, I think back in well, long well, I'm dating myself, but we get back a ways, you know, we sort of calculated each win at the time was worth about $10,000 to your contract the following year. You know, if you just did some uh, generic math, you could figure out, well, he won 15 games, well, that's another 150000 for sure. Now, that's peanuts nowadays. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, we, we, you know, and we always fall back on, the story about Alan Anderson it was a shame. Uh, he, when he had the ERA title wrapped up, and, and Patrick will remember this, maybe you will too, Manny, but he he didn't want to pitch the last. Uh, it was uh, Teddy Higuera from Milwaukee had pitched the night before, and uh, uh, he gave up, uh, I can't remember, three, four, five runs, whatever it was. So Allen had the ERA title wrapped up, and but it was his day to pitch. It was a day game, and we were playing the California Angels, and Patrick will remember Moose Dubing yes. was the manager, and they had lost, what, 13 in a row or 14? Yeah, they yeah, were playing guys off it, the street, it was man. Ridiculous. They didn't even, you know, some of them didn't even bother taking their bat up to the plate. <laughs> That's how bad it was. They'd get me out of here. And it was a gimme. I mean, a real gimme. Uh, and Alan only had, you know, and, and he come up to me during exercise and said, TK, I don't know if I really want to pitch this game. I got the ERA title. I went, Alan, you're making a horrible mistake. Please rethink this. No, I thought about it. I don't think I want to pitch. I, Alan, you're making a mistake. And I turned around and set, hollered at the pitchers, who wants the ball? <laughs> and, and, and Leroy Smith came charging at me. <laughs> and I, I gave him, uh, he, I said, Leroy, you got it. And uh, I think we won the game. I can't remember. It was ridiculous. <laughs> it, and, and, uh, and, and you'll remember back, we went to Milwaukee. Allen won the ERA title. Good. Okay. He goes to Milwaukee, and they booed the hell out of him. I mean, he went out to warm up out in the bullpen out there, and they just were all over him. He lasted about an inning in the third. I had to go get him. And I don't think he was ever the same after that. That was the next season, right? The, the next season. start of the next was season. Never, I don't think he was ever the same. No, it, I, I I was just going to make that same point that he you know he was never he never a good pitcher. There was always the rumor that a veteran pitcher had advised him not to pitch, yeah, that, but that did happen. Yeah. Yes, but we'll uh, we'll uh, let that go. But so, the uh, the point Manny asked a question about the, the the wins. Well, you know, there's there's times and places. Brad Racky as an example. Uh, Brad probably deserved to win uh, over the course of his career. He probably, especially when uh, some of the teams that we had there in the mid '90s uh, weren't very attractive. He he certainly, with any kind of ball club behind him, 
probably could have won at least 30 to 40 more games. No question about it. So that was disappointing uh, uh, for him. So he, here he has a chance to win 20. Uh, you're certainly going to give him that opportunity to do that. But he was a, a terrific pitcher with a big set of you-know-whats. And, and uh, <laughs> he go out there and, and give it to you. And some days he didn't have it, but for the most part he could he really could pitch and, and battle. So uh, uh, he was obviously one of our favorites. But uh, the wins and losses, Manny, the bottom line is the left-hand column and for the team and all that. We all know that. But, again, uh, I think it's important for uh, some egos that uh, they have uh, get those wins. And, and uh, you know, the manager used to look back. I know I did. Uh, and say at the end of the year, well, uh, especially the guys in the bullpen, uh, well, he's got six wins out of the bullpen and ten losses. Okay. Some people might not think that's too good, but the manager was willing and wanted him in the game. So that means this fellow is somewhat important to you because, well, he's out there when it counts. Now you see somebody out you read the stats at the end of the year, and he's got two wins and, 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 and three losses. Well, why? why? Because he's not pitching in the situation that's meaningful. He's not pitching at a meaningful time in the game, so he's not maybe as important to you as the guy that, that won six and lost ten. Uh, well, he's in the game when it sort of counts. Well, he didn't get it done sometimes, but uh, he's more important to you. And you say, well, what's wrong? Why didn't you pitch the other guy more? And Well, I know he's not as capable as the guy that lost 10. But, again, having these different numbers in the win and loss column means something at the end of the year. But, again, uh, it's all in the eye of the beholder. And I don't know what it means now because I don't halfway understand most of the stats they holler out at you (laughs) over the TV and, and, and this percentage and that percentage when the sun's out and it's 70 degrees, this guy does this and that. I know I don't get some of that, but, uh, again, uh, they have stats for everything now, so I can't even keep up. What was that conversation like with Radke back in 97 during that game when uh, you had him go that t- go that 10th inning? I don't know, Manny. That's a long time ago. <laughs> I have trouble with yesterday. So, you, you know, uh, I've told Brad uh, we had a nice conversation. We've had some nice conversations over the past few years, especially at the Twins events, that uh, Hall of Fame stuff, and, and this and that. And uh, told, I told Brad, I said, you know, Brad, you, you probably should have won 30 to 40 more games, and his resume would have looked so much better, but, you know, he didn't get much help. I'll never forget the one game where in, we're in the Dome, and pop-up went up behind second base and we don't need to mention names but uh, one fellow didn't even try for it and the ball dropped and and a couple guys scored it should have been an out off the field and and i said that's enough i said that's enough of this i I said we have to get rid of this fellow because he's you know and brad he wouldn't say boo never said boo about anything and I got out to the mound that, that night, and he was some kind of mad. I mean, he was hot. And I'd never seen him that way. I said, oh, boy, this is enough of this. Uh, Manny can try to figure out who's who. But, uh, uh, you know, th- there's different things that you remember about different people. I don't remember that conversation. I probably maybe didn't even have one, you know. <laughs> But, uh, uh, again, you remember certain things that happened to different people along the years. I said this to somebody else last week, though, but uh, you said you maybe never had the conversation. I think one of my favorite moments in baseball uh, is still uh, Madison Bumgarner pitching those last five innings to win the World Series, and oh. and, and uh, Boshi never even looking at him in the dugout. <laughs> oh. if, if he wanted out, Bumgarner yeah. was going to have to come and tap on his shoulder, and and, yeah. and Boshi knew that he wasn't going to do that. You know? Yeah, I like Sparky. <laughs> 
Sparky said, you keep your feet out of the way so you don't trip anything. <laughs> one of those things, I'm not even looking over there. Yeah, Bochy, he's he's terrific manager, did a wonderful, he's done a wonderful job over the years. So, uh, we were talking the other uh, day, uh, we were both uh, saying that uh, Crone is a uh, better player than we thought. He is, uh, right. He has been both good at the plate and in the field. Terrific in the field. He's done a terrific job. Uh, when uh, Shope did that little decoy thing at him the other day, and he got into, I think he got an error. On uh, Crone got an error. I'd have probably been really pissed that happened to me. But Crone uh, has done uh, wonderful work. He's been an impact both offensively and defensively. Now you got a player. So uh, give him a lot of credit. He's really stepped up especially after watching that last fellow we got from Tampa, you know. So <laughs> played that position. So he, he's been just fabulous. You've got to give the front office some credit for, for bringing this fellow in. He, he's done a terrific job. And uh, he's got a little – he's not quite Herbie running down the line to catch foul balls, but no, he's pretty good. There's nobody – that, that – <laughs> That guy's retired. <laughs> Manny, I don't know if you ever heard that story with Dick Such, our pitching coach, and we had tried out a number of people at first after Kent retired. And I think it's Kent's birthday. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it? 5'9 okay. on the program. Okay. I think, pretty sure. Uh, but uh, Kent would go down that right field line and in the dome and be running over those mounds and the <laughs> Catch the damn thing. Yes. It was unbelievable. Yeah, he was great. But, uh, you know, and so now we're trying all these other people over there, and and there goes the foul ball hit. And I'm begging for outs at the time. And and I said, son of a gun. Why, God, you got to catch that ball. And such looked up at me and said, T, in that southern drawl, and he <laughs> said, TK, the only person that can catch that ball uh, he he retired. <laughs> <laughs> Never forget it. That was kind of like uh, that was kind of like the search to replace Gagne as a shortstop. Oh, huh? God. <laughs> Don't mention that head. <laughs> you know, Gags. You know, we always talked about uh, shortstops, second basemen, shortstops especially. How far can they go in the outfield and catch a fly ball or pop up down the third base line or over in foul territory? out to short center field uh, and catch the ball. Uh, how f- and you could pretty much judge their range. On, on You know, we don't worry about those things anymore. We used to. But we, uh, how far they can go to catch the baseball. And then you knew what kind of shortstop you had. Yeah, Puck could play about three steps deeper. Yeah, he, yeah Puck he... was always deep. Well, he played deep to start with. But uh, uh, so it was very important to have that kind of guy at shortstop. Yeah, Gag, uh, Gag could run out there and. Uh, Ricky Reindeer, he could really <laughs> run. He's not as good as Willie Wilson and all them guys. Uh, Devon White, he could run first to third, first to home. He could really go. And uh, you know, and you know, Manny, he could never steal a. He he had a hard time stealing bases. We we brought Lou Brock in. We brought a whole bunch of people in to try to help him. And we nobody could help him really steal a bat. Now he'd steal one now and then, but uh, but the way he could run, you thought he would steal twenty, thirty bases a year. I'm not saying he's as fast as Buxton, but he's a stride. He was a strider like oh, Buxton. God, he had those really huge he'd strides. Do all these stretching exercises. <laughs> and you just watching him, you'd you'd pull muscles. You know, just watching. <laughs> he was he was a really limber guy and really could run. Hey, uh, Herbie, you brought up Herbie his birthday. Uh, he, uh, he, how often do you have to? Did you have to call in Herbie for a heart to heart about once, once every two years or something you like that? You know what, Patrick? He said to me one day, I can't remember. It was years ago, and we were sitting talking, and he said to me, "TK, I want you to know something." I said, "What, Kenny? I don't know what he's going to say," and he says to me. I appreciated you never bringing up my weight and what I weighed. I really did. I knew I was a little heavy, and he's not dumb. He knows. <laughs> I mean, and and 
but he plays so well. The problem was, you know, once in a while he'd get banged up and hurt, yeah. and that's why he had to retire. But, uh, but you know, he, he always appreciates That's what he said to me. I was sort of shocked. <laughs> but he said, I have always appreciated and I wanted to let you know. I said, oh, well. Don't think that I didn't want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I never did, and I don't know. You never know what the hell people are thinking about and what they feel and and uh, what they appreciate, don't appreciate. And, and believe me, it was, I don't know what the hell went through my mind, but he would play so well, and, uh, you know, he'd make plays down there at first that, were ridiculous and and he'd make them you know it was i don't know how many errors he saved in the infield and i guess that's why i've, I've always appreciated defense and uh the defense of the game and and, uh, and strong starting pitching because you put you in position to win so uh they only got five out of Oda Rizzi yesterday because i suppose the theory being his fifth inning uh, was uh, so laborious but he only threw 90 pitches so I would have tried to get another inning out of him. But that said, he was almost unusable for a long stretch uh, last year. What do you see with him? What's what's? Uh, well, I, I agree. I you know the the guy that got him was the, the all the foul balls. One guy had what thirteen, fifteen, eighteen yeah. pitches, whatever <laughs> the hell it was. Yeah. As soon as Dick brought up the point that his pitch count's good and everything, and and the guy fouled off 18 <laughs> the guy kept running back and forth uh, Simmons mm-hmm. the shortstop he yeah. he kept uh, running back and forth from <laughs> from first because you know it was three and two he was exhausted over there it was it was sort of funny but uh, you know I this is what I, I, I mentioned earlier Patrick about well I think we do need our starters to get into it a little bit longer and and uh, because I, I was always so afraid of the bullpen just wearing them fellas down and, and hurting them. But uh, they they put up all these safeguards now, and, you know, you can't use this guy, can't use that guy, don't use this guy, and blah, blah, blah. So, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, I think it's important that they start getting into the game at least. You know, I, I thought he could have went out there, but they say enough's enough, and they have, uh, you know, a rules they need to follow along with each day, and so they stick to them, and you can't argue because they're doing terrific. So, what, do you, what do you see different with Oda Rizzi, throwing, throwing more well, strikes? you know, last night I think was a blessing. Cedar Strom is uh, the umpire. Yeah. Uh, uh, we all know from Minot or wherever the hell he's from <laughs> up there in, in North Dakota. Uh, nice fella, been at it a long time, but we all know he's got, he calls that high strike and just perfect for Oda Rizzi. You saw a number of pitches that were up, excuse me, up near the upper level of the strike zone were called strikes. And so that sets him up pretty good in his breaking ball. I think is better this year in his split finger, whatever the hell that thing is he throws. And, and, and that usually is down. So he's got a good change of eye level there, and he's got pretty good control overall. And so this, you know, really sets him up well, especially when the umpire calls that high strike. And you see that with certain pitchers. You know, you get the right umpire back there and what they're calling and, and uh, really can help set you up for a good uh, good night of baseball. Yep. Uh, Baldell, he's been sneaking in Adrianza a lot. He, that is this area that uh, played yesterday. He's, uh, you know, you'll look at the at the uh, lineup and he'll uh, have uh, three guys off the bench uh, playing. When did you? I know you had the day game after night game uh, s- Sunday lineup sometimes, sure. but uh, what was your bomb squad theory? Yeah, I always like to play them the day games and uh, put them on. They look forward to it. They look. Uh, guys like Davidson, Newman, uh, those kind of people, the backup catcher, uh, always look forward to playing that day, and I think they were disappointed if they weren't. So I, I, I tried to make sure I told them uh, before they left that night that they were in there the next day, and uh, uh, I, I think it was uh, they charge in the clubhouse <laughs> the next day and check the lineup card and go, you know, so they were uh, very enthusiastic about playing, but I, 
Uh, Rocco's done a good job of getting those guys in, and like Adrianza, he gets them his share of at-bats, which is very important. He looks comfortable at the plate. And why wouldn't you be in that lineup? Uh, uh, there's enough guys that can hit right through the lineup where, you know, you can get everybody gets protected a little bit, and, and he's had enough at-bats where he's, he seems very comfortable at the bat. So, and look at the Ari has, or I think that's how you say his name. That I used to call him Double A. <laughs> Two A's to start with, but he he certainly jumped right in and gets. Uh, I think he's got nineteen, twenty hits already, and, and only like ten at bats. So he he's been terrific, uh, getting his share of hits and getting on base, running the bases, and he looks comfortable. He looks very comfortable at bat. So. Uh, these are all blessings to have, especially have these kind of players on your bench that can come in and contribute and you, you feel comfortable writing their names down. So he, he's done a nice job getting those guys in. Oh, uh, one uh, last thing, uh, Tom. Uh, sad deal for Garver, man. You uh, you oh. watched him come up through that organization yeah. for six, seven years. He was 27 when he really got his chance to be Correct. there full time. And now he was the hitter that people thought he was going to be and now this happens yeah it's unfortunate for him he, he's uh like you said patrick uh we're halfway close i guess is uh a lot of conversations with him over the years as you know the fundamental well they don't do them as much anymore but back in the day when i was working with guardy and and uh uh i'd have a field and you know uh, mitch would be one of our catchers and he uh, I seem to have him most of the time. And so, you know, you're hitting fungos, you're doing this, and he's catching the ball from the pitcher and blah, blah, blah. And you end up talking quite a bit and, and having some conversations and uh, during your time there. And, and so uh, it's one of them guys I grew a little closer to than some others. But uh, unfortunately, he came up uh, with an injury at home plate there. That was very unfortunate. He's having such a wonderful start to the season. Uh, he's catching a little bit better, and that's coming along. That's what we were concerned about last year. We always thought he was going to hit uh, with the more at-bats he got and the more experience he got that way. And his catching would improve, and uh, they gave him some help this winter uh, with his catching. He's done a little bit better with it. He's, he's probably could do a little bit better yet but he's on definitely on the improve with that and uh he throws well enough and you know but uh, you know the guy was just terrific got some big hits hit the ball over the fence he was having a, just a terrific season and uh I, w- I was a little downhearted when he got hurt and they had to carry him off there that wasn't good i felt bad for the kid nice good kid Hey, Tom, thanks for your time. Talk to you in a couple of weeks, sir. Always a pleasure, Patrick. And Manny, you hang in there, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Will do, TK. All right, uh, the great Tom Kelly. We'll be back with uh, Mr. Kirkjian. Uh, Tim Kirkjian with us, ESPN and ESPN.com. Tonight he will be in Wrigley Field uh, for the Phillies and the Cubs. They had a heck of a game there last night. And uh, I'm sure another one before a crazed crowd. Hey, Tim, uh, Manny and I were talking about uh, I was in Montreal last week for a few days just on a vacation, but uh, they're trying to get baseball back. And every time I uh, think of Montreal and baseball, I think of how they got robbed in 1994. What a baseball team that was. That was a really good team. And I recently talked to Felipe Alou about that team and how good that team was and what a shame that was. And he made the point, and he's not the only one that's done it, that baseball might still be in Montreal today if they were allowed to finish that season. It's possible the Expos would have won the World Series that year and everything would have gone in the right direction. They would have gotten a new ballpark. But because the players went on strike, that season was never end, never completed. And that's one reason why there's no baseball in Montreal today. But that was a great team. Kenny Hill is your number one starter, and a 22-year-old kid named Pedro is your number two. And crafty lefty Jeff Fasaro is three. And you got Wetland, Rojas, Heredia, Shaw, and Scott in the bullpen. 
And then you have an outfielder that outfield that has Rondell White as the fourth outfielder behind Lou uh, Grissom and uh, Larry Walker. That was something. Yeah, that was a really fun team to be around. Also, and again, Felipe Lou was, I believe, never managed in the World Series before. That was his best shot, and he never got a chance to do that. And this is where, when you look back, you know, 25 years later. Uh, that team got robbed as much as any team we've ever seen. Yeah, Charles Bronfman's son, uh, Stephen, is uh, trying to uh, get baseball back there. And, uh, of course, uh, Tampa's mentioned often, but Tampa still has a lease that runs through, I believe, 2026. So uh, we'll we'll see if that is a possible thing. You know what's changed in baseball, Tim? We don't fire managers as willy-nilly as we used to. They uh, they give them a long leash, and uh, two examples being Dave Martinez in Washington and, of course, Mickey Calloway in uh, the Mets. Uh, the big rumors he was going to get fired, but he's still around. Yeah, and I think part of that, Pat, is, let's face it, the front office is running the game for a lot of managers today, and I'm not suggesting exactly what's happening in new york but managers are being told these days not everywhere but in some places you know your job is to prepare the team to play the game and then prepare them after the game's over but we'll take care of the rest we'll tell you when to pinch it when to take a pitcher out so i think these front offices are saying well maybe we have to take some of the blame for this team going poorly because we're helping the manager manage the game. So maybe that has something to do with the slower trigger these days, but uh, it's not going to be a whole lot longer before some guys you know, start to get their jobs taken. Um, if the Nationals and the Mets keep on losing. And the uh, young geniuses might uh, also feel a little uh, sheepish about firing the guy that they picked out and hired, such as Mickey Calloway, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, this was the uh, the brains behind the uh, Cleveland Indians and that whole deal. So I'd, I think they think maybe it reflects poorly on them if they fire these guys. Right. And the, the other thing, Pat, and you know this, is, they are young GMs today. Our young executives do not value the role of the manager at all like they used to. So they look at the manager and say, well, he's just pushing our buttons. We're not going to be any better if we bring anybody else in here because nobody else is going to make a difference because managers don't make a difference anymore. I disagree with that, by the way, but I think there are enough executives that feel that way that they look and say, well, what kind of change, what kind of manager could we get who's actually going to make a change? Managers don't make changes. We make changes in the front office. The players make changes, not the managers. You know who I want to see run for president in 2020? Giannis Cespedes' agent. I don't know who he is, but this has got to be the smartest man in uh, the northern hemisphere, in the western hemisphere. Yeah, and that guy, oh my gosh. He's getting paid so much money now <laughs> to not play. And the sad part about all this, Pat, is that when he plays, that team's winning percentage goes through the roof. It's unbelievable the numbers for the Mets. But it's Granted, one week a season. <laughs> right. But they, they win six out of seven every time he plays. Then he gets hurt, and that's the end of that. It doesn't mean he's that good, but it's not a complete coincidence that they play a whole lot better when he's in the lineup. So he's riding his horse around that swampland ranch he's got down by Port St. Lucie. Because, hey, people, when you think ranch, you think of Montana. This isn't Montana. Florida, it's scrubland, these ranches. And uh, what, supposedly he stepped in a hole? Is that what we're saying now? Yeah. Now, Pat, again, we're talking about a guy who's had, like, double heel issues. <laughs> yes. And is trying to come back to play uh, and not miss an entire season. You would think somebody who's got that kind of an injury issue would not be climbing on and off of a horse <laughs> and would be walking around on rough terrain. You would just think. But apparently that's not the case. No, it's, uh, it is a beautiful I, I I forgot to look it up. He's had to make, what, $150 million at least in the game now? By now, I would think. I forgot to look yeah, it up. Yeah, and I would say at least that much. And he, he's a productive player, and he's a good player, but 
you know, you can't help anybody if you're not on the field. And that's what uh, we're learning more and more as the injured list continues to grow. Well, uh, yeah, the uh, I, I was a big believer in the NL East this year that it was going to be a war between four good teams, but uh, it, it's a war. But it's uh, I think you've told you told me this a couple of weeks ago. It's a war between uh, some very flawed teams. Yeah, and I think it's now a two-team war, Pat. Mm-hmm. I think it's the Phillies and the Braves. I mean, it's. It's really not smart to count anybody out this early in a season, especially in a winnable division. But the Phillies are getting better. The Braves are definitely getting better. That kid, Austin Riley, they brought up Pat Mann. He can hit. And just another another reminder, he's a third baseman, Pat. And Mm -hmm. they just put him in the outfield and said, hey, you're going to learn to play the outfield on the fly here because we need to get your bat into the lineup. Just another reminder This is how we play the game today. We sacrifice defense to get another home run bat in the order. This guy is crushing it already. He crushed it at AAA. So barring a big change, I think this is the Phillies-Braves race, not a four-team race. And, you know, three weeks ago I thought for sure it would be a three-team race. Hey, Tim. Uh, Is the Braves doing it uh, by, uh, you know, falling off a little and and then uh, having all these kids come along and uh, international signings for sure, but also draft choices? Is that going to emphasize the Astros method and we're going to have eight more teams trying to lose so they can uh, cut the payroll down to nothing? And uh, are the Braves going to kind of uh, another example of the Astros method working? Yeah, and that's it's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. Oh, yes, it uh, is. And, and the Astros are so good right now. Pat, they have two 10-game winning streaks yes. this season yes. already. No one else has one. They have two. That's how good they are. They're going to get real healthy here soon, and they're going to be even more devastating. They've won. They've gone 14-1 and one and outscored their opponents by 55 runs <laughs> in that time. They're killing people, and yes, they are the prototype. If you're going to get really good long term, you got you got to get really bad first. Astros proved that, and now they're reaping the benefits, and other teams are paying attention. What was Seattle? Were they fifteen and three? Was it something like that? They were. They were thirteen and two. Pat. Thirteen and two. And they were. I'm going to be close on this. They were thirteen and two, four games ahead in the division, and less than. Five weeks later, they were under 500 and 10 games out of first place (laughs) and in fifth place. So I looked it up. Only two other teams have ever started out 13-2 and and then dropped below 500 at any point during that season. (laughs) And the other two teams, one fell under in July. That was the 87 Brewers. The other was the 66 Indians. They fell under finally in September. The Mariners <laughs> fell under 500 on May the 10th. <laughs> that went from 13-2 and two, to under 500. It was like 13-2 and two and now 9-10-25. and 25. I mean, it's been an amazing fall. But it's easy to see where it comes from when you see some of the chuckers they were running out against the Twins uh, last week in that four-game series. They finally won a game on Sunday, but uh, uh, the Twins just battered some very mediocre, very less than mediocre pitching. Right, and also the Mar- even though the Mariners hit a lot of homers, their defense is oh terrible, terrible pass, <laughs> terrible. And you, you know, we know you, there's never been a World Series champion that had a bad defensive team. Bad defense kills you on a daily basis. It's killing the Mariners, and that combined with bad pitching is the reason. They've fallen so quickly. Well, the game they won Sunday against the Twins, they gave the Twins like four. Every run the Twins scored, they gave them. You know, I mean, even even then they, you know, they had to score a bunch of runs. But they're uh, they're terrible in the field. You don't you don't see that many horrible defensive fielding teams at anymore. But well, uh, boy, when they're the bad, shift, it's obvious, right? But the shifts take care of yeah. that, Pat. That you can hide a bad defensive player in a shift a little bit easier. Also, the whole slide rule at second, 
as as we've talked yes. about way too many times, has taken away the artistry around the bag. So we don't value defense because we can hide it a little bit better. Are they uh, what's what's the word in St. Louis? Are they a little panic stricken down there? They thought they're going to be a lot better than this. Yeah, and I thought they would too. And I think they Pat were twenty and twelve at one yep. point, and they now they're in fourth place in their division. Uh, one game over five hundred. Their starting pitching hasn't been nearly as good as we thought it would be. And you know this is supposed to be a loaded offensive team, and I think it will be eventually. But they've got their hands, they got their work cut out for them because the Cubs are back. The Cubs are pretty good again. The Brewers are a dangerous team. The Pirates are a pain in the neck to play. This is this will be four years in a row if the Cardinals don't make the playoffs, and that doesn't sit very well in that town, especially when you add Andrew Miller and Paul Goldschmidt, and you're still staggering around at 500 in the middle of May. And it looks like they're going to have a Stanley Cup Finals for the first time since 1970. St. Louis might be a hockey town here shortly. (laughs) Well, to me, it'll always be a Cardinal town. But (laughs) you're right, Pat. And the the Cardinal fans there, as we know, are so smart, so sophisticated. But they're, they're a little bit, you know, impatient right now. And I guess I don't blame them when they're used to such success over the years. So as Philly, uh, Philadelphia is still in love with Harper. Are they little. What's what's with the two thirty? The two thirty? Are they? Uh, you know, they can turn on a guy in a heartbeat, and they're certainly not turning on him. But are they a little? Did they expect a little more? Do you think? I think so. I mean, he's hitting low two hundreds. He's leading the league in strikeouts, but he had two home runs over the weekend. One that went four hundred and sixty-six. Still on a pace to hit. Close to 40 homers, driving over 100 runs, which is what they wanted, which they wanted him for. But he, he, it has been a struggle for him, and it'll be real interesting to see um, how he pulls out of this. He's better than this. I'm sure he's going to get much better than this. But just proving it's a hard game to play, and when you're trying to, you know, show everyone you're worth all that money, it makes it a little bit hard. Tim, uh, thanks for your time. We'll talk to you in a couple more weeks. Okay, Pat, you take care. See All you. right, the great Tim Kirchin, uh, the Tom Kelly, Tim Kirchin doubleheader. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, next week, uh, Buster Olney, deep thoughts, all kinds of good stuff. Uh, thanks for listening.